Where do I start? Have you ever done something in life and gone, well, that was pointless? That was useless? I've got an 11 year old who continuously tells me that uh, you watch something on YouTube and go, well, that was pointless. Well, so why watch it then, you know? But isn't life like that? You go doing things and it's pointless, has no meaning, useless. We've been going through Ecclesiastes, and uh, pretty much that's what the author or the teacher here, some Bibles might say preacher, some say teacher. Well, what it means is the person that brings sentences together. It's probably no direct translation for it. So that's why you see it interchangeable. But anyway, the teacher or the preacher, he's, he's surveyed his inward life, he's looked at uh, wisdom, and he's looked at all these things in the first two chapters. And the end of each one, he kind of concludes, well, that was pointless. That was meaningless. I gained nothing from it. So it's only logical now that in chapter 3 that he kind of starts looking outwards, looking at the world, trying to understand it maybe a little bit better. It's chapter 3 that we're looking at today. If you've got your Bibles, uh, please turn over to chapter 3 and let's read through. It is a chunky text. There's 22 verses, so don't fall asleep on me. Hang in there. There is a time for everything. A season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear down and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has has also set eternity in the hearts of men yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toils. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men can revere him. Whatever is has been already, what and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both righteous and the wicked, 
For there will be a time for every activity and a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see what they are, see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All goes to the same place. All comes from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upwards, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for man than to enjoy his work, because this is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? How many of you have been to funerals and heard the first eight verses? It's a common reading for funerals, is it not? Even for those that aren't Christian. Why is that? I think it's because they hold fundamental truths. People can see things changing. We can see life. We can see death. We can see the seasons. We can see war. We can see peace. The first uh, eight chapters, they hold 28 couplets. Obviously, it naturally starts with birth and must end in death. But verse 2 deals with the natural life. Verse 3, creative and destructive powers of man. Verse 4, human emotion. Verse 5, human relationships. Verse 6, human lifestyle. Verse 7, human conduct. Verse 8, human actions and consequences. I'm glad to tell you that the sermon's now over. I've done my job. If that's all we came for, that is. The first eight verses. But I think there's more. There's more to this passage. And it starts in verse 9 and ends in verse 22. It might seem like it's the ramblings of a madman who's got way too much time on his hands, who's contemplating how the world revolves. But I think in amongst all those verses of ramblings, there's some fundamental truths. Now, I'd like to explore those fundamental truths. Obviously, these are my fundamental truths that I believe I've been led to uh, talk about. You might have some more. Come talk to me afterwards. I have no issue with that. In fact, I encourage that. I'll gladly engage with you. Fundamental truth, firstly, number one. We live in a world of change. And it affects everything. We see the change all around us. It's everywhere, is it not? 
We see it in the seasons, the weather, winter, summer, the trees budding, the trees losing their leaves. We see it in politics. This party wins, then that party wins. And with that comes a new set of rules and policies and laws and new promises. We see it in war and peace. One country in peace, another one torn. Romania, Syria, Palestine. Even America now is in turmoil, is it not? Things change. We spend millions every year trying to combat aging. The wrinkle creams that you can get these days are astonishing. How many of them work? Death. Oh, there's a big one. Researching into death. How many millions are spent there? There's a whole science on chrysostasis, or stasis, should I call it, where they try and freeze you so they can bring you back later on. Change. I made the mistake of asking that question in, in a sermon before. What is constant in life? What is constant? Now, I got varying answers, obviously. I got uh, death. I got taxes. Uh, that one's probably constant. Time? How about time? Is time constant? Sorry? It changes, does it not? Even time's not constant. We can't go back in time to change what we've done. We can't go forward to predict it. Did you know that time is actually affected by uh, natural uh, physics? Gravity affects time. Did you know that? We have uh, two clocks, atomic clocks in the world. There's one here in England. We're privileged to have one of them. The other one is in America. Did you know that between the two of them, that there's a couple of milliseconds difference? The only reason is because one is higher than the other. Gravity affects them differently. That's why every couple of hundred years they adjust the clocks by a couple of seconds. We recently went through it, did we not? Changing the clocks. Time. Time's not constant. The further away we are from the sun, the more relative it is. Who's watched Interstellar? Geeks? Any geeks? There's one over there. Any others? You just don't want to admit it. There we go, hiding your hand over there. Interstellar, that's all what it's about. Time and relativity. How you age differently the further away from the sun you are. Time is not constant. It changes. We see change everywhere. We see it in the faces of the ones we love as they grow older. We see it in the buildings as they crumble and rust. Death, even death is a change. It's a change from life to something else. So, what do we conclude from that? If everything changes and we have no control over it, 
suppose we should just be content as being humans. Can't change today or yesterday. And we can't change or predict tomorrow. Might as well be content. Suppose I could stop the sermon there and go home. But change is needed. We need change. We might resist it. We might be scared of it. In fact, we have whole business sectors driven around it. Change management. Change management. How to manage people when things are changing. Don't believe me? There are people that do change management. In South Africa, we have a, the oak tree. You know what an oak tree is, I hope. Um, who likes oak furniture? I do. My rabbit likes it more as he chews and gnaws at the legs. But in South Africa, we have an oak tree, which um, actually is not native to South Africa. It was bought by the English or the Dutch um, and planted there. It grows, does what a tree should do. It grows, flowers, has acorns. In fact, it grows fast, really fast. Uh, it grows big. English and the Dutch thought they were onto something. They thought, oh, we've got something here. Only to discover that it's not as good as the English or the European oak. It's barely considered to be a hardwood. In this country, it's a hardwood. It means it's hard to work with. It can take knocks and dents. You build your barges and things like that out of it. In South Africa, it's soft. If you dent it, it kind of leaves a mark. So why is that? Why are the trees different? Same species. It's because change. The tree needs change in summer and winter. It needs the cold. It needs to grow slow. If you cut a tree through and you see those rings, you get a light one and you get a dark one. The light one's normally quite fat, isn't it? The fleshy part. That's the part that grows quickly, the summer in its life. The dark part, the dark ring, is the ring of change or hardship. It's those hardship rings that actually make the tree strong and hard and makes it resilient. We need change. might not like it. We might not even want it. But we need it. I suppose I can give a personal reflection here, which I didn't do in the first service. I spoke, last time I spoke to you, I spoke about me being made redundant or potential. Well, I was made redundant. I had to go on the job search. I resisted it. I needed a job. I needed to be paid. Why did I resist it? Maybe because it was forced upon me. It wasn't a choice I naturally made. It wasn't like I woke up and said, oh, I'm going to go look for a new job now. I'm tired of this one. It was, I had to. But I need the change. We don't know how long change will last. You might be going through a period in your life now thinking, when will this end? How much longer? 
We don't know. We really don't know. Well, I can't give you those answers. But what I can tell you is God is in control. Verse 10 says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Now, you're probably sitting there going, well, who put God in charge? I didn't. I didn't vote for him. There's no referendum. Maybe the New Testament explains it slightly better for us. Romans 9 says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You are the lump of clay, as Jeremiah explains. He is the potter. He has the right. He made everything. So why shouldn't he control it? I suppose if God's not in control, we could look at the other side of the coin, flip side. If God's not in control, who would you want to be in control? Politicians? Who wants Donald Trump? Hands up. You want Donald Trump in power? Okay. Fair enough. But how many other politicians would we want in control? God controls things irrespective of what we think. Everything happens in accordance to his schedule, not ours. Now, it's interesting here to note that just because everything is ordered by God and God controls them, it doesn't mean that he wants them. God doesn't want us to kill. He doesn't want war. But they're part of life. They're part of the human. Part of sin. So God orders them and controls them. An important side note here is to note that God makes everything beautiful. How many of us sit here feeling inadequate, wishing we had something better? Straight hair, curly hair, skinny, fat. We all want something slightly different, don't we? People spend hours in gyms trying to get buffed up and have six-packs. Other people are happy just to sit in front of the TV with a remote. But God made everything beautiful. The psalmist says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So if God is in control and you are wonderfully made, 
then why shouldn't we enjoy our toils? Well, God is not affected by time. 11 says, He has set eternity in the human heart. I suppose we could say, why would God put eternity into a human's heart if God didn't live forever? Could use that argument. Be valid, wouldn't it? God's not there to torment us, but He's put eternity in our hearts. We all worry about what's going to happen in the future. Some of us try and ignore it. Some of us prepare for the future. We have pension funds and things like that, am I right? But that's probably about as far as most humans go. We worry about to the point of, you know, can we enjoy retirement nicely? And we try to ignore what happens after we die. A lot of people just say, well, then I just stop doing, you know. I cease to exist. God's not affected by time. He wants us to share eternity with him. It's probably why he writes it on our hearts. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is our beginning and our end. There is nothing outside of him. He is eternal. How many times do humans think that they are gods themselves and can live for eternity? They strive to leave a legacy behind so that people will remember them. Build the highest buildings. Spend millions doing things so they can be remembered. But when they die, how quickly are they forgotten? The teacher's correct when he says, sadly, we are like the animals. From the dust to the dust. But I don't want to leave you discouraged there. God is unfathomable. We don't understand him. 11 says, verse 11 says, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Isaiah says, asks the same kind of question. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. I got into a conversation with my oldest son. I don't know if you know him, Landon. Um, he used to come here quite regularly, I suppose. 
Um, but like most of us, he's going through kind of a season in his life where he, he's battling, he's working on his salvation, I suppose, is probably what Philippians terms it. Anyway, I got into conversation with him about creation and the universe. We kind of watch a lot of uh, sci-fi movies, I'll admit it. Um, I enjoy them. And he asked me the question, well, do I believe if there's, is there life on a distant planet? It's a valid point. You've probably all heard that conversation somewhere along, or even asked yourself, you know, you asked that question. Bible doesn't really give us a, a straightforward answer and say, no, there's no life. We can read between the lines and probably say, no, there isn't. But anyway, putting that aside, I said to him, well, if God had created life on a planet that was 500 light, billion light years away from us, somewhere out there in the distance, a place that we would never, ever be able to reach in our lifetime, and God went and created life there, how great is God? He would be a lot greater than us, wouldn't he? Maybe our forefathers had it right when they penned those words, how great thou art. We can't fathom fathom him. We don't understand God. He's bigger than us. So when change comes, are we going to let him be in control? someone that's bigger than us? Our giants will fall with God who is so great. God is unchanging. Well, the world around us changes. God doesn't. This is a fundamental truth. Verse 14 says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. If God is so great and in control, and we can't fathom fathom him, should we not fear him? Now to fear here, let's not get all worked up about the word, actually means to revere, to stand in awe of, to admire That's what it means. So God is unchanging. And we should fear him. Could you imagine if God changed his mind constantly? What kind of world would we live in? Today he woke up and he said, Oh, I feel like, yeah, I'm going to feel generous today. You're saved. Everybody's happy. Tomorrow he wakes up and he's feeling a little bit grumpy because he went to bed a little bit later. And he says, oh, no. That one that you got away with yesterday, today I'm going to zap you for it. Could you imagine a world like that? He wakes up and he says, okay, the weather's going to be nice over there. Oh, no, it can rain. What a world of chaos would we live in? We have no control over him. So he can make up his mind and change things like that. Can he not? 
But God doesn't do that. He is the same today as he was yesterday and he will be tomorrow. Could you imagine if uh, humans were in charge? How quickly would things change then? How many of us are consistent just in our lives? In your workplace, are you the same? Today you let something go, tomorrow you don't. In your families, are you consistent? My kids have a a famous one of telling me that I'm not consistent. Because what I let the one get away with, I don't let the other one, you know. And it's like, oh, you let him get away with it. You ever had those conversations with your children? They're famous for that, aren't they? They know how to pick those up. Consistent. Are you consistent? If we're not consistent, well, no offense, I wouldn't want you in control. Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A fundamental truth. He doesn't change. He doesn't sin. And he sustains all things. Now while the world changes around us and uh, we have no control over some of these things, um, there are some things that happen in life. They aren't right. And those people get away with it. Or so they think. And it was no different. The teacher here, he picks it up as well. In verse 16 he says, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Corrupt rulers change the laws to suit themselves, do they not? Many times we've seen them change the rules and policies so they can rule with an iron fist. History's littered with them. I'm sorry to say, but it's true. Verse 17 says, And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I don't know what your circumstances are here. I don't know what lifestyle you've had or anything like that. I don't know what your family life or anything like that, your history. You might be abused. You might be the one that's done something wrong. What I can tell you is whatever injustice has been done in your life and those people seemingly have got away with it, they will, they will be called into account. God will right the wrongs. That is the truth. He is just. He is fair. 
The New Testament kind of unwinds that for us, for us better. In Corinthians it says, For we must all appear before, God, before the judgment seat of God, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In Romans, God will repay each person according to what they have done. That does beg the question, as you sit here and you look at me, and you ponder over your lives, what have I done? If you had to stand before God, and he asked you, why didn't you do that? Or why did you let that go by? Have you thought of what your answer would be? Even if it is just being inconsistent in life. Maybe he'll say to you, why did you treat your one child that way and your other one that way? He has full right to ask you, if he's made everything and you are the clay, does he not have the right to ask you? The question is, if you go from here, are you ready to answer God? Those are sombering thoughts. Are you ready to answer for your actions? Many of us might be uh, sitting here thinking, oh, I'm fine. But God will judge everything and every deed and every one. That means you, me, and everyone. Eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity is on your heart. So would you want to spend eternity with God or without God? Not a trick question. With God. Would you want to spend your eternity with the one that controls everything, has everything figured out, knows everything, sustains everything, or would you like to just live life and say, I'm happy to go with whatever comes? I know which one I would like to be. Eternity in hell, separated from God. Eternity with God. There is no in-between. It's this one or this one. Which one? So while your life is crumbling around you, because of change and things that you cannot control. I want you to know this, that God is constant. While you're going through hardship and trials, God is in control. While the world is torn by war and injustice, and sin. I want you to know that God is righteous and He will right the wrongs. I suppose, in some ways, we're a little bit more privileged than uh, the teacher here. Yeah? 
because he just concludes that, well, in fact, he doesn't really know. He says that the spirit either goes up or goes down. Does he not? We have a little bit more insight. We have a whole New Testament. If you want to go read it. The whole New Testament explains what happens to man. It explains why God stepped out of eternity into our lives so that we can be set free. So that the injustices of life and the sin can be paid for. You are privileged to know this. But how many of us will walk from this auditorium today not taking that opportunity? We would rather just let life carry on. Whatever life deals us, we'll take. Ignoring the fact that there's a better life, that there's more to it. You are not the teacher. You are more privileged than him. Eternity with God can only be gained through Christ. That is a fundamental truth. My leaving question to you is, if not, why not? Why not let God in control? Why not seize eternity with Him? If not, why not?